Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Prison Counts. I'm your host, Ryan Ferguson, here with my good friend and main man, Dave Dowling. How you doing, Dave? Pretty good, buddy. All is well. Indeed, indeed. I'm really looking forward to today's episode. This is, uh, I mean, this is to me an achievement for us. We we want to talk about life in prison, but we also want to talk about all facets of the criminal justice system and talk to people from every side. Um, we're going to have an investigator on today, which to me is just amazing. Uh, I look forward to hearing, you know, his side of things. I've only I've only talked to investigators uh, in a not so positive capacity, so this should be very interesting. Absolutely. Um, our guest today is Officer Jim Wethington. He's been a policeman for over 20 years. I'm sure he'll tell us exactly how much, but it's been over 20 years. Now, we hung around in high school. We used to run around and we were buddies then. And obviously I went my way and he ended up becoming a policeman. And he's been, he's worked for the DEA. He's been a sex crimes investigator, a homicide investigator. So he he's very knowledgeable. And so getting the inside track on what the interrogations are about and, and from their point of view, you know, and how they go through it, you know, what their plan is. And I've been interrogated many times <laughs> to, to hear it from someone, you know, like Jim and, and, it, and that we still have a good friendship, you know, is pretty cool. You know, he doesn't judge me on my past and I don't, you know, certainly look down on him for his career choices. You know, I'm real proud of him. You know, he's Absolutely. been very successful. You know, I mean, I love Jim. He's a great dude and, and he's a very intelligent guy. So we're going to get a real good uh, glimpse into you know, the strategies and the uh, goals behind the interrogations, you know? Yeah, that's awesome, man. And I think what's important to note is most people within the criminal justice system are doing a good job and doing the right thing on a daily basis. The unfortunate reality, though, is that there are some bad actors and they're the ones who get talked about and they're the ones who uh, we often end up discussing because we have to expose what they've done to individuals. But uh, I fully respect the career and I respect people like Jim who, I mean, clearly he, he has done a, a heck of a lot in this field and is, is an incredible expert on these subjects. So, uh, yeah, without further ado, let's bring on Jim. Hey Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. I think this is really, uh, this is really neat that, uh, I get to reconnect with my old buddy. Uh, I remember, uh, running around with Dave when we were kids and doing a bunch of crazy stuff and, we always got along great, always had this great banter and rapport. So I thought that uh, when he invited me on the show that we would just end up having a good time, and I'm sure we will. Absolutely. And, you know, another good thing about me is when after you became a policeman and I still kept getting in trouble, I never called you to save me, did I? No, you didn't. And, and no. I would tell you the amount of people that. I can't do it. That go and tap that <laughs> keg is, is unbelievable. So. I, I, to me, uh, that's too much. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's too much. In my opinion. Like I always, like I knew you were a policeman, but my troubles were my troubles. Right. I just ate them. You know? I had one particular friend that kind of in and out of trouble. and I know he, that friend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he would call me to gauge uh Basically, how much trouble am I in, and uh, where am I looking? And like wanting you to give information on the investigation, basically, or like no, not not so much that. Not not he knew that I wasn't going to um like become like engaged, and there were never cases that I was working directly. He just wanted to know right like how good of a case do they have against me, and um 
Almost every time they had a good case. <laughs> I always had to deliver some bad information and some bad news. You know, they might be at your door right now. The good take another peek. <laughs> take another peek. I know you've been peeking for a while. Take yeah. one more. The good news is it's going to take a while to get the actual warrant. The bad news is they will be a warrant. <laughs> they know where you're at. They're in no hurry. Yeah. <laughs> you're not that hard to find. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I've uh, done the job for uh, over two decades and I've been very fortunate that uh, one of my first bosses saw some potential in me to be an investigator and put me in as a detective pretty early on in my career. And uh, so I've had an opportunity to work on uh, numerous federal task force. I was actually detached to DEA for four years and um, a fraud investigator. I've done uh, sexual assaults, crimes, crimes against families. I've taught interview and interrogation, which I believe is going to be today's main topic. So there's a lot of facets to the interrogation. I would say without seeing yours specifically, other than the clips from uh, the movie is it seems like uh, Erickson was getting spoon fed pretty pretty big details and the officers were really leaning into him and being overbearing to the point where he felt like he had nowhere to go. And you should say that my dad actually, (laughs) after, uh, after I was uh, convicted, he would go to the courthouse during some of the hearings and in his suit pocket, he would show up with a spoon in his pocket and he would say, this was, the Columbia Police Department's interrogation tool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have their interrogation tool. That's that's funny. <laughs> no, but I mean, I do want to just say, I do think interrogations obviously are very necessary. People hearing this discussion need to know from Dave and I's perspective, we realize the importance of it and the necessity of it. And so that's why we think it's so cool to get your perspective on it. So yeah, sorry to cut you off, but I just thought the the spoon fed part was uh. Was no, I think that's good. That's actually really funny. They I, uh, have a prop, you know. I uh, I'm curious. So in his situation, the police felt like they had a strong suspect. Have you ever been in a situation where you weren't sure yet, but you had a strong suspect? How invested do you get? I mean, how is it? Is it difficult to stay emotionally separated from the situation? It really depends on the officer and what stage they are in their investigative experience. So, of course, I've had many suspects that were strong suspects that never panned out. And that's the idea of chasing down leads and flipping over rocks and looking for a suspect. you got to weed out your suspects to get to the right one. So one of the things I see very often in many investigations, and I've experienced myself, it's where I had to self-correct is when an officer or detective specifically, since we're talking about investigations, falls in love with their own hypothesis and their own theory. Mm -hmm. So no longer does the information come through an objective lens. They try to distort it to fit their theory because they wanted to be right on day one. Well, that never works. In this particular case from the Columbia Department, I don't think they had that problem with the hypothesis and theory not working out two, three years later. They just finally had something to go on and they wanted to they wanted to smoke it to the filter. How difficult is it to self-correct like 
I don't want to say publicly, like the whole public, like publicly with your peers. I don't know how to exactly word that, but like when you've been on this and you've been pushing this and suddenly you realize how difficult it is to eat that crow and say, I think I'm wrong here. You know? Well, it's really difficult, but you have to be consistent about it. If, if you're in love with your theory and nobody else's theory is worth a crap, you have to be willing to say, my theory is not right anymore. We need to go with this other theory. It's not an uncommon occurrence for me to be the one guy in a room that would speak up. Uh, I worked with the Major K squad a lot, and it was not uncommon for me to be the one guy to say what 30 guys were thinking, but no one wanted to go against the supervisor and where we were going. So um, there was more than one occasions where people would say, hey, can you ask this question at the next meeting? Because they don't want to be ostracized. And I just want to get to the bottom of it in the truth. So I became what's called the disagreeable giver, where I worked the hardest, had the best information, and I was going to keep working no matter what happened. But because I disagreed with the overall theory, um, sometimes the bosses weren't too too fond of me, but the rank and file loved working with me because of that. It was that we had a friend, uh, J.W. and I, whose mother was end up murdered. And the case went cold for a long time, and you ended up solving that case, didn't you? I didn't solve the case. I helped give the family information to pass on to the detectives that ended up helping spark the lead and identifying the suspect. It was just a matter of understanding DNA databases, and they had not pushed out the DNA in that particular case statewide. And in St. Louis County, the investigative agency has to have a reason to push it out statewide or request it. The labs are aware of that. So um, they have to build a case in order to... Well, they just have to give some sort of reason why to push it out statewide. And in this particular case... Is that for legal or for money-wise? I don't know why, to be honest. Um, hmm, that's interesting. But I know it's the protocol, and at least it was at that time. And one of the suspects lived out of state. So I said, well, I said, just in a vanilla conversation with the family, hey, well, they got to push it out statewide. Have they done that? And that sparked that conversation where they went to the agency and asked them to ask the lab to push it out statewide. And they got lucky in another state and identified the suspect. Right. I got a uh, quick question before we get too far. So what was it with the term you, you said uh, that you were the, the disagreeable, disagreeable giver? giver. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so the disagreeable giver, I forget exactly who it is. It's, there's a um, leadership expert that does a lot of TED talks and he talks about four types of giver or four types of employees, the disagreeable giver, the disagreeable taker, the agreeable giver, and the agreeable taker. Did I say the four right? I think you did. I'm with and, you. Right. And so if you can identify within an organization who your disagreeable givers are, they're the people with the most knowledge in that particular field. Makes sense. They almost have to be because you have to be able to back it up, right? Right. You got to, I mean, you're putting yourself out there. You don't want to look like a fool. And if you do do something dumb, again, going back to being consistent, you're only as good as your word and your consistency. So there's plenty of investigations I've been on throughout the years where, um, where, I've been wrong on a theory, but I, I'll abandon it right away. I'd rather abandon my theory than go down, um, you know, in a ball of flames. 
So I'm wondering, as the disagreeable giver, man, that's a, I don't know why. It's a tough one for me to say. Yeah, but easy is for there you ever, to say. Is there ever a situation where there's you've experienced, whether part of it or not, an arrest, and then they, you know, you have to get it, like, you basically have to wait for DNA to come back or certain uh, evidence to come back that needs to be tested. A person's incarcerated in the county jail at that time, and then that evidence would come back and show that they're innocent, or you you conclude for whatever reason that they're innocent during an investigative process after they've been like arrested and put into County jail, say it takes a week or six months. Have you ever experienced a situation like that? And then what happens within the department? Is it tough at that point for, for that community to say like, Oh, okay, this guy or gal is innocent. I have not had a firsthand experience where um, I found out my suspect was sitting in jail and and they were innocent. So you, just, you investigated before you made an arrest. <laughs> well, yeah. Or I, so you make an arrest and then you can still compile your case before you present it to the prosecutor. Okay. So, but there has been a case before where I've gone to a grand jury, um, as information came out after, um, and the, the person was locked up in the County jail on a different case, but the other case was really strong and mine warrants were issued. So they were in there with under both cases. Right. So they weren't just sitting there solely on my case, but I went to the grand jury and said, look, the investigation's proven that the victim isn't telling the truth. And they were baffled that, that I told them I would not true bill this. Uh, and a true bill is there's two layers after, um, to proceed forward in a court proceeding, one is a grand jury true bill. And then there's the preliminary hearing where it gets bound over for trial. All either one of those two things mean is that there's enough to proceed with a court proceeding, not guilt or innocence, just that the state has enough to proceed with the case. So I'm surprised that they wouldn't. I got called back and forth in and out of the room to clarify kind of like, you know, it was an anomaly, really. They, they weren't, right. it wasn't, they weren't used to seeing the disagreeable at work. Right. So why, do they, why do you think it's such an issue to be like, okay, you know, we found out some new information and it goes against what, you know, the theory was or whatever. So we shouldn't pursue this case. Why do you think it's so, I don't know, it's tough even for the judges or any, any part of the system to say like, oh. Why would you not want to pursue that anyways? Well, a lot lot of times, I think in this particular case with the grand jury, there's the case is usually very well vetted before warrants are even issued. It's it's a hard standard, at least in major metropolitans to get a case issued, you know, just on the pure volume that they're dealing with. They got to they got to filter out as much as they can. So. By the time you get to a grand jury or a preliminary in a lot of these major metropolitans, um, they're only got a issuing. Good case. Yeah, exactly. They don't they don't send any wishy washy stuff. So they they I think everybody was just shocked that um, you would backtrack. Well, ninety a hundred percent of the things they see most of the time, yeah, backtrack. Yeah. They see is a good case, and here's somebody sitting there. So grand juries are cycled out. So. Um, in their in their time as a grand jury, I was probably the first and maybe the only one of any police officer that said, don't issue on this. 
Ryan said something earlier about police officers being able to lie in the interrogations, which when you say it like that, it makes it seem, you know, it sounds bad. Like what, you know, police officer lie. But in reality, I mean, that's a strong tool. And uh, at what point do you use that? And at what point do you think it can become abusive? Well, that's a good question. That's why you're doing this. Really? You're asking such great this is magic. It's like you floated down on a cloud and asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Dave asked some yeah, of the best I questions. I get accused angelic <laughs> behavior all the time. Like, how are you so great all the time? I'm like, you're oh. like a mystic. You're like a unicorn. Like, oh, it's been the best two months. Not of one life, of those you know? clouds, Dave. More like a rain cloud. <laughs> <laughs> Pouring it out on all around me. No, I just felt silly going, what a good question. As I bought time while I thought about it. Um, so there, there's very good court um, direction on when you can lie and when you can't. So you have to really pick and choose when you lie, because if you lie and you say something that the person that did it is absolutely positive you're lying. Then they know you don't have it. You're anything. done. Right. You're done. They know you don't got them. Um, and not to give up shit. too much trade craft, but this is a pretty simple one. We got your fingerprint. This is in the movie The Town or where Ben Affleck's like, good luck with that print before he leaves, you know, because he knows they didn't leave a print, you know, right. where John Hamm looks like a looks kind of like a douche. So so you can't. So one thing you have to make sure if you're going to lie, it falls within a reasonable lie that the person's going to buy it, you know. Um, so the court will allow you to do that because it is a powerful tool and. A lot of times that's how you get people over the hurdle. The other thing is with that, though, is you can't bring in f a false prop. I can't come in and wave a disc and say, hey, this has got your this surveillance videos got you at the scene, you know, time to give it up. And then they give it up and you don't have said video. Right. So there there's lying and using your your being a wordsmith. And Some then, of those lies, and kind of like in Erickson's case, will only really work against a, a weaker-minded, innocent person. Because I can remember being interrogated, knowing I'm guilty as heck, knowing they got the right guy, and I'm sitting there, and I'm giving them my bullshit, and they say something that I know is impossible, right? and I know they don't have me. And at that point, I know I'm done here. I'm like, can I leave? You know, yeah, you I know. just have to wait it out. And they point. blew it by saying it because usually I was starting to think of how can I lessen the consequences rather than get out of it. Right. Because they got me here, so they know it's me. But then somebody says something, and I'm like, they know it's me, but they don't know it's me. Right. They They're want me real to say sure. it's me. Now I know that that's the game. Now I'm out of it because I know anything more I say could just dig me deeper and I've already told you my story and I'm ready to go. Right. Had they just applied the regular pressure, I would have cracked because, I mean, I'm cracked. You know, I'm not that hardened, really. You know, when you start thinking about if they get me, I know I'm guilty. I need to lessen the consequences. Well, you know, what am I going to do? How am I going to? How can I soften this? Where you do know, I spin that's, out of this? Right. That's insane because I, I never think of it from that perspective. You know, I always look at it from the perspective of. Well, I bring person. the guilty perspective to the party. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and hearing that perspective, like you never think about that. <laughs> well, you know, I would think like with the uh, and getting back to the original, what we're talking about, which is the lying, you know, lying to get somebody to say something. I would think the most simplest one is when you have co-defendants. 
And all you got to do at that point is say, you know, Jim's over here telling us everything. Right. You might want to get ahead of him. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he knows Jim's a piece of shit because they hang around each other and they right. know what each other do. So it's very easy to believe the yeah. old boy is over here killing me. You know what I mean? He stole 20 bucks from me last week. Yeah. Why wouldn't he tell me now? Right. Honor amongst thieves is a, uh, I don't know any good friends that I've ever known that would want to do 30 years for me. You know, I mean, what would make you think? Just because when you were up for three days, you guys made this special bond that when this shit comes crashing <laughs> freaking down, <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, when you get off, there's like if you go on your little binge, I this from my own experience, and you hang out with this guy and you're having fun with him for a few days. And finally, you're like, oh, God, why am I hanging around this dirt bag? And he's thinking the same bag about you. And you're like, I don't I never see this prick again. I'm dropping him at the gas station. And I'm going home and crying. You know, <laughs> a race to the bottom. Right. So, I mean, you know, it's just, I, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, I just, I see it. Sounds like you listen to the old grades. <laughs> you think? <laughs> I like how he went home and cried. Though. Yeah. I you got to go home you and know? cry. If any of your dope stories don't end up with you going home and crying, you're a liar. Either that or you made a collect call and you were crying. Right, somewhere along the line, Ooh, this shit's going to end with you in tears. You know? The self-reflection's yeah. a bitch. Tough my ass. <laughs> oh. All right. So, JW, walk us through, like, the goal of the – I mean, obviously, the goal is to get the person to confess or to find out the information you need. But, like, what are your strategies maybe or, you know, what's the map the of man. the interrogation. So for the process of an interview, like you said, you you do want to get a confession. Everybody has their own technique. And I've borrowed from a lot of different classes and other interviewers that I see. But one thing I probably spend more time on than most people is setting this baseline. And it's it's part of the it's part of the tradecraft. Uh setting a baseline is very important. But I spend a little bit more time than most people on a baseline. Because I want to know how you act when you're telling the truth and how you act when you lie. And if you don't get comfortable with me, I don't really have a true baseline. And you're never going to be super comfortable. You're sitting in an interview room with a detective that you're well aware of what his goal there is, and that's to get sure. the confession. So so I, I spend some time breaking that down. And uh, so one of the things I'll do is I get a baseline on a lie by asking them something I know they would be ashamed of. A lot of times it's drug use. It's losing your job. It's losing, right. not having custody of your children, something you're ashamed of. And hard to talk about things. Hard to talk about. Um, and then I'll ask somebody something positive that, you know, they're going to tell the truth about, like if they're proud of something like their car at their house or, or a tattoo a lot of times right. or a job that they're, you, they're clearly good at. So I start there. I do three phases in my interviews. One's that baseline where I just kind of start introducing stuff. And I'll literally leave the interview room for phase two. Phase two is kind of the meat and potatoes where I start picking apart what you're saying, maybe getting that detailed lie, depending on. And then in the third phase is where I lean into it and I go for like the confession. By the time I get to the third phase, the person is usually in a state where I have to do one or two things. And this is when I know I'm on the right track. The first, they are going to want to know what's going to happen next when you tell me. And I have to be able to answer that question. And the second thing is I have to convince them that I'm not mad that you've been lying to me for three hours. Right. Because we're conditioned that don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. You lie. And people, society acts um, 
kind of aggressive to people that are caught lying. So you have to let the guy know, I'm not going to flip over a table. And let me tell you, even for the hardest of people who've been through the system a lot, when you're in that room and they come in and you start feeling the weight of life on you, no matter how tough you are, it'll start weighing on you. Mm-hmm. And you start thinking of, you know, lots of things, you know, I mean, it's- right. When the best interviewers never raise their voice, they don't yell at you and you listen. That's the number one thing I do is I listen because I have to respond. Right. Because, you know, what, when it, when I've been in and I've been in a lot of interrogations, but when they would get fired up, well, that would snap me out of my fear into anger. Right. And now mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. now I've become, I've, I'm like feeling strong again like their anger right. strengthened me to say fuck you, you right know what i mean prove it then you know what i mean or whatever it's, you know what i mean i would get well before i was feeling the weight mm-hmm. of calm truth the anger you came to me with now i'm upset you know whether what you're saying is true or not it's obviously affecting me emotionally you know it's hard to keep lying to a person that's being nice to you and then i tell <clears> myself <throat> and all my friends and we go on. And you then I, <laughs> and then I let him have it. And then nobody's safe. Right. I met this dude the other day. I'll give and him. And I'll be like, can I at least get an extra honey bun out of this? <laughs> Yo, know, I just saved you like three weeks of investigation. Could I get the, the other bologna sandwich? Can I get double bread? <laughs> and then JW says, "Yeah, I'll bring it to you." And he never comes back. The son of a bitch. You got no. Bologna I told sandwich. the jailer to give you the bread. <laughs> you got no honey bun. Nothing. Uh, do you you feel like the majority of the interrogations go according to what your plan was or do do they get off track absolutely every interview goes a different direction um so i i teach uh people that i'm training or myself again these are techniques i've learned this is a technique i've learned for myself um I try to script the interview on here's where we're going to go. That's phase one that I was talking about. I go through my script. Phase two is kind of revising my script. And so I step out to re-script where we're going to go next um, because it doesn't, it very rarely goes just as you said. So you want, it's like chess, you know, you want to know, well, they're most likely going to say this. And when they say this, I got to be here. And and there's a really, really, um, there's very much an art to listening while while still planning your next three questions. So for a new investigator, the first year, it's hard to just get a person to wave Miranda. Well, you know, it's almost like when uh, I questioned Dana's grandson, who's six years old, about did he take the pizza off the <laughs> counter? He's the only one in the room. I know the pizza's gone. I know Dana only eats two pieces. I know how many pieces I've eaten. He's got four crusts on his plate. And I'm like, hey, man, do you eat those other two pieces of pizza? And he's like, no. I'm like, no, huh? You ain't eat those two. So you turn two crusts into four crusts without eating two other pieces of pizza? Yeah. And because I'm not his real grandpa, I can't just spank him, throw him in his room. I got to keep on. I got to go tell on him. You know what I mean? I'm like, I think he's lying. I can't really prove it. The crust might have got broken half, but I think he's lying. Yeah. Your fingerprints are right here. <laughs> right. You got to hit him. Right. Hit him with the DNA. Exactly. Well, you know, I don't have the resources to really get this kid in the horrible position I want him in. JW, you, you guys hiring? I think you might have a in the horrible position. I don't think if we. I don't think we want a guy that can't crack a kid that a six year old that ate pizza in front of him. 
Well, then he gives me the cute stuff, and I feel all bad about maybe caring if you ate the pizza. Uh, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, whatever. You yeah. know, you're a grown boy. Hey, we're gonna let you off this time. One more piece of pizza, or some funny <laughs> snacks come up missing, and we're gonna revisit this. Hey, at least he knows you're watching the old Hawkeye. Absolutely, it's all about that. The bad thing is he knows I don't have the heart to do any real punishment, so. It doesn't so work stepping all over you. All right. You're uh, just keeping them do. accountable. That's yeah. good. <laughs> well, thanks, JW, for coming over, man, and being on the show, man. Really appreciate it. We appreciate your, you know, your candidacy and your openness, you know, and your objectiveness. Really awesome, man. Thanks for coming. Absolutely. And I, I feel the same way. I mean, we're, we're honored to have you on here. And I've thought about and read about investigations a lot, interrogations a lot, and hearing your perspective is uh it's enlightening and i mean i feel like i definitely learned some and uh got some good laughs so thank you so much for being here oh thanks and it's it's great to be here i thought it was fun and uh if you ever have any other questions or just want some insight or you want to hear a funny story about dave uh (laughs) trying to get on a rope swing and crash into this bank on a river you just give me a ring (laughs) (laughs) we're just gonna have a a whole episode on dave I was just going to thank you for your service, too. And now I'm like, screw you in your service, yo. <laughs> no, really, no. Take thank it you, back. Man. Thank you for being out there every day, man, doing what you do, man. Oh, you're welcome. And everybody trying to do the right thing appreciates it. I promise you. Thank you. All right. Well, that was even better than I would have suspected. I mean, JW is super cool, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I had the opportunity to meet him. And uh, thanks for getting him on the show, Dave. Yeah, he's a great guy. I, I just love him, you know. Him and I have a very, I guess, kind of odd relationship. But, you know, like I said in the thing, I never once called him to help me get out of trouble or anything like that. You know, I never wanted <laughs> to involve him in my, you know, for one, I was embarrassed when I was getting in trouble like that and being a drug addict. And all. You know what I mean? It's embarrassing. I didn't want to call him begging him to bail me out of something, you know, I mean, it's, I don't know. I just didn't ever want to do that. You know, I just call mom and cry, you know, I feel feel (laughs) you, mama. (laughs) Yeah. It's just so interesting hearing, you know, interrogations from his viewpoint. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, he's very intelligent, you know, and he can give, he gives you so many different sides. Like you gotta remember he's from the neighborhood. He was one of the fellas, you know, really almost all his friends growing up are <laughs> somewhat criminals, you know, like I remember the day he told me he was going to become a policeman, you know, when I it didn't upset any of us or anything. We weren't like organized crime ring. We were just young punks for real. So I, I really appreciate how he maintained his integrity as a friend and one of the fellas and his integrity as a police officer. You know, I mean, he, that's a fine line, you know, that's a difficult thing when you, you know, to be a part of both worlds, but he does it seamlessly, you know, I mean, and his, his explanations when he was talking about the disagreeable critic and the disagreeable giver that those textbook terms he uses, it just really opens up, you know, the roles that they play while they're doing these things. And that's your job. Your job is to crack the case. Your job is to, you know, get to the bottom of things and find the truth. If that gets skewed, well, then you got injustice going on, like what happened to you. And that's tragic. That's tragic stuff. I mean, and I like how he was open and honest about that, you know, and he's not afraid to go up against somebody if he doesn't feel that it's the truth. So he does have that integrity. That's the best word I can say for Jim. I mean, I mean, he's that kind of guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I think it just shows like, you know, he he doesn't view like good people or bad people, you know? And I think, uh, I think sometimes 
people just they get into that mind frame, whether they're detectives or whether they're you know convicted of something or just the public. You know, it's not everybody's not good or bad. They're you know we're all just human beings. Absolutely. And as long as you can keep that perspective, I think you're going to be able to do great work. Right, and that's it. You know, you if you do something, you break the law, you pay your penalty. And that should be the end of it. You know, honestly, you know, you don't have to let prison become you. That's what you are. I know guys who have done that where you just, your biggest thing is your prison facade. And I I never wanted that to be me. And I I still don't want it to be me, even though I'm on a show now talking about prison. I don't want people to only know me as a convict or a convicted felon. I want people to know that I do some pretty nice things too, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. And I think that's the important thing about this show is we we really get to show people man and uh and i don't think that people who've had the misfortune of going to prison for this mistakes that they've made uh are humanized you know i mean it's uh people mess up but people also deserve a second chance and they're coming back out into the world and we can all be positive people and do good things together but we have to we have to see the person and not what they were ultimately charged with or the fact that they were just in prison Right. And the person like myself who, who did do things that, you know, harmed other people, you know, you got to own that and, and believe in redemption. You know, not everybody's going to believe in your redemption and they don't have to as long as you believe in your own redemption. Well said, man. Well said. All right. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we really enjoyed creating this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. We, as always, want to hear your thoughts, feelings, questions and concerns. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram. You know, my account is Life After 10, Ryan Ferguson. We have the Prism Counts Twitter. So find us. Also, we're going to be doing a live chat, you know, to talk about our podcast. And you can join us on that. And uh, you can ask all the questions you want and join us in that process. We look forward to having you join us there. We're going to announce the times and the dates for that every week at my Instagram page. So come on, Life After 10, join us. We're also going to be putting out new episodes every Sunday at noon. So uh, we look forward to seeing you there. And uh, Dave, how about you, man? Look forward to seeing everybody and hearing some uh, feedback. And um, we're open to criticisms and praise. So uh, yeah. we'll see you at count time. <laughs> see you at count time.